Alright, welcome once again to Celluloid Fever Dreams, a weekly walk through overlooked and obscure films from the 50s through today. As always, I'm your host, Wyndham Jennings, and this week we're going to be looking at Life Force from 1985. And uh, i got to be honest with you, this is not the movie I originally set out to watch. Uh, I was thinking 80s vampire movie, and I wrote this one down, and uh, it turned out to not be the one that I was thinking of. The one I was thinking of was The Hunger, which stars... David Bowie and Susan Sarandon and Catherine Deneuve, and uh, somehow I got it mixed up with this one. And before this past week, I'd never actually seen Life Force, so uh, interesting experience. Anyway, it's uh, from 1985, directed by Toby Hooper, and if you're sitting there wondering where that name seems familiar or uh, why it's important that I point that out, uh, Toby Hooper's big film, his big contribution to cinema, the thing that made him a legend in the horror community, was 1974's Texas Chainsaw Massacre which is, to this day, one of the scariest movies I've ever seen in my life. Uh, and kind of fits with what I, one of the reasons why I, I do the, this podcast. And it's like the perfect film that I'm, I'm looking for, a perfect example of the type of film I'm looking for, uh, even if it's just a little bit too well-known for me to include as an episode. I mean, there's, there's been tons of articles and books and documentaries, etc., done on Texas Chainsaw Massacre by people a lot more qualified than I, I am to talk about it. And I don't really feel like there's anything I could contribute other than, as I said, it's one of the scariest movies I've ever seen in my life. I remember seeing it uh, on video back in the mid-80s when I was really starting to get into horror films. And it had an impact on me. I mean, it just is so raw and visceral and, and just... The film looks dirty i mean it looked like you know even even then you know vhs video quality and all that good and we we're watching it on the four by three ratio but even years later watching it on dvd you know in the early you know maybe 10 15 years ago it still has this kind of like dirty quality to it like it's almost like a almost like a found footage film you know the uh, costuming the actors uh, the special effects is all just so because of the budget they were working with and the timeline they were working with it just looks so real i mean it looks like one of those those you know videotapes you find like you know like something you'd find and you start watching you realize that this isn't something you should be watching and i think that's part of why i didn't really like the remakes and the reboots they made back in the uh, early part of the 21st century in that they're too clean you know they're they're too high high resolution you know uh, 4k high def however you want to put it doesn't help this film it doesn't doesn't help the story of it you know casting somebody who i know doesn't make the film better you know all the things that made the original good is the low budget the no-name actors the the fact that everything just looks looks like normal people you know just like people you'd pass in the street and you know that that's that's not something you can recreate nowadays and i think that's why the film still has such an impact and that's all i'm gonna say about texas chainsaw massacre uh, but besides Texas Chainsaw Massacre, he also did the uh, television miniseries Salem's Lot, based on the Stephen King book of the same name in 1979, and Poltergeist in 1982, which yeah, I, I just found this out recently as well. There's a bit of a, a controversy about Poltergeist in that, because uh, I didn't even know Toby Hooper directed it for years because it's just got the feel and the look of a Spielberg film which Steven Spielberg wrote it he did storyboards for it he produced it and you know according to Toby Hooper he was on set for several days and if he had any questions if Toby Hooper had any questions he went to Steven Spielberg and got his feedback on it so that's why it kind of feels like a uh, Spielberg film though there are conflicting stories about that Spielberg was actually supposed to direct the movie but uh contractually he was locked into et which came out within a week of poltergeist if i remember correctly and so he just visited the set in his capacity as producer but there have been stories of actors who didn't work on the film all that much who said that no they were directed by spielberg and uh, i gotta admit seeing some of his other work and even watching this film i gotta admit poltergeist does seem to have more of spielberg's touch than than toby who uh, spielberg has said that the horror aspect the fact that it was uh, ghosts and, and the supernatural is a uh, came from toby hooper said his original script was you know more space aliens which is you know of course more of a more up spielberg's alley but uh yeah let's let's talk about this like i said i I went into it expecting a different movie and got this one and you did a little research on it it's based on a 1976 novel by colin wilson called the space vampires and in fact that was the original title of the script but canon films who produced the film decided that it sounded too campy and b-movie and so they changed it to life force because they uh felt like 
that sounded like a bigger budget and a more sci-fi film. And uh, Canon Films is really Canon Films is something. There, you could about do a whole podcast on Canon Films. Period. I mean, it, it, a lot of films from the late seventies, early eighties, uh, the Chuck Norris action film from the the early eighties. The breakdancing movies, uh, breaking, breaking two. Yeah, you know, they they kind of got a a reputation for doing these quick, low budget action films and and uh, low budget horror films, et cetera, et cetera. And the, and they kind of seen Life Force as a chance for them to sort of push back against that reputation. But they did also produce several uh, Oscar winning films over the course of their uh, career until they finally went out of business into the uh, in the uh, mid nineties. Let me double check my note. Yeah, but yeah, Cannon was known for for running pretty close to the bone budget. In fact, uh, filming on this movie shut down for a few days because the studio just ran out of money. Though, the, the flip side of that is also the film was only supposed to film for 17 weeks, and uh, Hoop, yeah, Hooper ran over by five weeks, so that may have played a little bit in, into it. Canon, the, like I said, the story of Canon Film is a lot more than I can get into in this episode. If you're really interested, there's a documentary out called Electric Boogaloo, the wild untold story of Canon Films that uh, I recommend if you, you really want to see how crazy filmmaking was in the 70s, 80s, and early 90s. I, I recommend it. But uh, as I said, it was produced by Canon Films, uh, distributed by TriStar. There's more than one cut of the movie as well. The one I watched was the 101-minute theatrical cut. There's a 128-minute director's cut floating around. Uh, I think you can only get it on Blu-ray if I, if I, what I've seen online is correct. I didn't see anywhere you could stream it. So one of them we talking about is the theatrical cut. From what I understand also, most of what's cut is at the beginning of the film. Apparently... Uh, the, the movie starts with the space shuttle Churchill going to investigate Haley's comet and encountering a an alien spaceship in the coma of the comet or the tail of the comet, following along behind it. And uh, uh, yeah, apparently that was originally a hang on thirty five minute sequence of them going to the comet, exploring the ship, and getting back to Earth. So a lot of what was cut is actually in those in those openings. And you know, I can't really say if it made the film better or not. I, I I feel like the one I watched showed us just enough of the aliens getting to Earth to move the story forward. I'm not really sure adding the scenes back in would have added a whole lot more to it. Uh, Henry Mancini did the soundtrack, original soundtrack for the film. Uh, in the theatrical cut, though, the studio brought in Michael Kamen to do some uh, extra music, do some incidental music uh, to sort of back up Mancini's score. If you're if uh, you're familiar with uh, Henry Mancini, he's done several film scores. The most famous piece of music he's probably ever done is the Pink Panther theme, both the uh, one in, you know, which is used in the movies as well as in the cartoon. That's uh, that's where I knew the name from when I first saw it, saw it come up. But uh, you know, pretty good career uh, scoring scoring films for decades. The uh, plot of the film, which is space vampires coming to Earth and, and causing havoc in London. There's some people that see this as a, a bigger budget remake of the 60s film Quartermass of the Pit. Haven't seen that one either, so I can't really comment on that. I just thought I'd bring it up because there might be some of you listening who might know a little bit more about it. Might shoot me an email, leave me a comment, let me know what you think about that, take on it. Uh, author Colin Wilson, though, hated the film. He, he, he actually sent a letter to a fellow author, John Fowles, who had once made the comment that the film of one of his books, The Magus, was the worst movie ever ever made. But Colin Wilson sent him a message saying, after seeing Life Force, I told him that I had gone one better. So, yeah, uh, Wilson really didn't care for a lot of the, the uh, changes that Toby Hooper made to the film, some of the more horror aspects of it. And, and uh, he kind of just disowned the film once it came out. The special effects for the movie... I was really surprised at how well they're done. Apparently the film only had like a $25 million dollar budget in the mid 80s and uh, by comparison batman 1989 was made for 40 million dollars give you an idea of the, the type of uh, disparity in budget but especially the the space sequences at the beginning the weightlessness them uh, flying with the little uh, i don't want to call them jet packs but the little almost like compressed air packs that they use for the spacewalks going through the spaceship that whole sequence and and the way it's shot the camera angles and and all of that is just just really well made it, it's very reminiscent of the uh 2001 film you know you get the i get the feeling watching them that they are weightless that that they are in space that all you know 
the the movements, the angles, the costumes, all of it. It's really well done, and uh, I decided to look it up and figure out why. And the special effects for the film were done by John Dykstra, and he's one of the founders of Industrial Light and Magic. George Lucas hired him for uh, the original Star Wars film back in 77, and he's won three Oscars over the course of his career. One for Star Wars, uh, one for Spider-Man, and maybe it was two for... He's won three Oscars. He's also invented the Dykstra Flex camera, and the uh, you really want to see what, what that does, and then you have to go back and watch Star Wars. A lot of the uh, dogfight sequences and spaceship flight and the uh, shots flying over the Death Star were the uh, Dykstra Flex camera. And him and Lucas didn't really see eye to eye so he never brought back for any other star wars films but he founded his own company apogee inc and in the years since then he's worked on a ton of things he's worked on battlestar galactica uh, star trek the motion picture the clint eastwood film firefox uh, he worked again with toby hooper in uh, invaders from mars and he also worked on uh, spider-man 2 so yeah he's and he's still still out there he's still working on special effects and like i said the special effects in the film is one of my favorite things about it it's really well done the uh We'll get into the story now. Like I said, the, the space shuttle Churchill approaches Halley's Comet, and it's a joint British and American mission in order to study Halley's Comet. And I, I got to be honest with you, I, I get, I mean, I'm, I grew up in the you know, late 70s, early 80s. I get the space shuttle. I mean, we all were just blown away by it and in and, and love with it. And it's such an iconic design. I can understand why they wanted to use it for the the film but it's never meant to fly between planets and the changes they made to it in order to you know make this work for the opening sequence of the film just i don't know it kind of knocked me out of it in that when you first see it it's flying and it's got the uh at first i wasn't sure what they were it's got like these long thin wings that come out of either side of it and you might know those are solar panels like you see on uh some of the interstellar craft like the voyager that flew out uh from late 70s and and things like that that just spread out and, and you know really long and they look thin I mean, I know they're not, but, you know, skinny mirror sticking out from either side of the ship. It's got a rocket thruster on the bottom of it, so I'm not even sure how they launched the thing and got it up there to begin with or how it's supposed to land. Uh, and there's 10 people in the shuttle, and the inside just seems really, really large. I mean, for the amount of people, for the amount of supplies you'd have to, to send, I mean, it's... I think, uh, let me check. Yeah, they've been in space six months, and you've got ten people in a space shuttle. And I don't know, for for me, it was just a little bit of a stretch to imagine that they, they did all of this and have, have this many people crammed into the space shuttle and, and have room to retract. Because that's the other thing. As they get close to the comet, the solar panels retract, and I have no idea where they retract into because they don't have much space you'd have to use for people and supplies, etc. Uh, and then they get out of the shuttle on a hatch on the bottom of the shuttle you know, where the heat-resistant tiles would go. And I love the design of this alien spaceship. It, it's like a... I'm trying to think of... of it's like a plant version or an organic-looking version of the uh, 2001 uh, craft. The name just went right out of my head. The main main spaceship in 2001. It's got a bulbous end, long, thin body, uh, roots, literal, like, just twisted roots down at, at one end of it. And as the shuttle gets close and the uh, astronauts come out of the bottom, the front end opens up like an umbrella, just unfolds. And according to the movie, the ship's 150 miles from one end to the other. I mean, it's just a massive ship. And once inside, they find what what they assume to be the crew is the inhabitants, but they all look like giant humanoid bats, and they're all completely desiccated. No fluid at all in them. In fact, one of the uh, astronauts snaps off one of the alien's fingers to show just how dry and brittle they become in the uh, in the spaceship. But shortly after doing that, one of the doors ratchets open and there's just a blinding light that comes out of it. And of course, you know, they have to go in and, and uh, explore this. But inside is like, it, it's Superman's Fortress of Solitude from the 70s and 80s movies, except all the crystals have burnt out. I mean, it, it's that kind of crystalline structure in there, but they're all black. And except for three crystals in the middle of the room that are clear, and from the perspective when they first go into the room, they're hanging upside down, which fits, since everyone else on the ship kind of looks like a bat. But inside it are three naked people, two men and one woman. And it's never brought up, but there's a crystal near the three of them. You've seen a few shots that look like there's a body in it. So I don't know if they're implying that all of the, the dark crystals you see in the chambers may each contain a body as well and as that somehow has failed or i don't know if that's just like a mistake in the the set design or if that's 
you know a plot line that didn't go anywhere but uh yeah i noticed it right at the feet of the the center crystal where the uh, female is but it's decided to take back one sample of the bat aliens back on the shuttle and to take back all three of the ones in suspended animation so that uh, they can be studied but then then they we jump back to earth to uh, britain mission control great britain and they can't raise the Churchill. And th- this part of the film kind of annoyed me because we're introduced to somebody who's you know, obviously important. He's the guy in charge ordering everybody around. And in my notes, I just have him listed for a good chunk of them as Man One because they, they don't bother with names. They don't bother with anything. He's just ordering people around and people are responding to him. And it's a good you know 15 minutes later into the film before we're introduced to him. And it just annoyed me. It's like, okay, he should be somebody. He should be... You know, obviously you're trying to make them important, but we can't even like zoom in on a, a nameplate or something like that to, uh, you know, in these opening moments to sort of give me an idea of who this guy is and why I need to be paying attention to him. But they send up the uh, shuttle Columbia to uh, investigate why the Churchill isn't responding. So we have a movie about and then the entire crew of a space shuttle being lost on a mission just months before the Challenger disaster. Uh, and, and just a, a weird coincidence and uh I'm, I'm old enough to remember that day and and it was just a shock i mean they, you know i, I kind of came in on the the tail end of the whole space race and and everything and even when i was a kid it was still you know the shuttle launches were a big event they televised them and and People would watch and people would gather around, you know, like a sporting event down at the launch site and watch it. And, you know, that, that day, it, it was very rough. You know, I mean, we, we were watching it at, you know, in school. We got to see the, uh, got to see the news reports and got to see, find out what happened. And it's, uh, it's one of those, one of those days that just stays with you. And, and, you know, Columbia, you know, in the movie is the one they send up for the rescue mission. And then in 2003, it, it was lost as well. So, you know, it's kind of it's a little bittersweet watching these kind of movies and, and seeing the space shuttle again and remembering those days. And, and uh, anyway, the inside of the uh, Churchill is just black. I mean, it's just everything's been burnt. We're treated to some of the crew floating by, just, you know, barely skeletons with burnt flesh and, and uh, no hair on them and just everything inside ruined everything except for the three aliens who in their crystal still in their crystal coffins are just completely untouched so they're brought back to the uh, european space research center in london and the uh, news exposition well i'm sorry the news is being used as expo- exposition and uh talking about comets are usually harbingers of disaster and that people People used to see them and and, uh, prepare, you know, they used to be the harbingers of plagues and and, uh, death and war and destruction, et cetera, et cetera. But we're treated to the the man, man number one, watching on a uh, closed circuit monitor as the uh, female is placed in an examination room left with a guard and everybody's in the, you know, wearing masks and trying to protect themselves from whatever she may be carrying, you know, alien to the, to, uh, our world but then as soon as everybody's left the guard enters the room and starts staring at her and you're kind of not sure if he's just like genuinely curious or if he you know somehow you know attracted to her or if uh, somehow she somehow enraptured him like controlling him drawing him in and he reaches out to touch her and as soon as he does her eyes fly open and we see the the man who we're going to find out is dr Bukowski. and i had to write that down twice because when he, he's his name's first mentioned in this in a later scene he i could have sworn they said dr fossey and uh no not fossey it's dr bukowski but he sees this on the monitor and immediately begins running down a ridiculous amount of stairs and doors and you know the whole time we, we cut back to the guard and the alien woman sits up and you know she's just completely naked and removes the guard's rebreather and kisses him and as she's doing this you see lightning you see the lights flicker you see a, a corona of energy in the ceiling circling around them and you just see all this energy pouring into him and pouring out of him into her and as i said dr bukowski comes running down there and i actually run it back and counted and he goes down three floors of stairs because apparently there's no elevator to this observation area and then through five separate doors in about a 50 foot space and then reaches the observation room where he throws open another door and the guard's dead i mean he he's just he's zombified pretty much i mean he's had all the it's energy but he looks like he had just had all the fluid drained out of his body i mean he's just a skeleton with just a bare coating of flesh 
uh, on the on the outside of it. And then the girl appears, and you see her sort of walk towards Doctor Bukowski. And again, it just seems like he's just enamored of her, like he can't do anything but stare at her. And you see her start to put her arms around him. And a third man, who again unintroduced, no name or nothing, sees this and rushes down the same three floors through the same five doors. Except he's got two guards and two surgeons with him. And when they roll in, the original guard is still laying there on the table and smoking. I mean, just just little puffs of smoke coming off of his, his corpse. And uh, Dr. Bukowski is just sort of leaning against the counter like he'd been attacked or like he, he's having trouble standing up. And you're not sure if the girl did drain anything out of him or if she knew the others were coming and escaped. But they put out an alert for her. And I've got to say, uh, yeah, I actually looked it up the the girl and they never give her a name this also annoyed me it's like she's the main villain of the piece and i know she doesn't have but a handful of lines but they never give her a name even in the script even in the introduction because she's played by uh, matilda may a french actress all they call her is space girl it's like you know you, you, she's your main villain and you can't even bother in even if it's just in the script to give her a name but she doesn't bother and I don't know if they tried to do this to show how alien she was or how she just wasn't familiar with anything, but it is the slowest escape in film history. I mean, the next probably 10 minutes of the movie is her slowly walking through the facility, walking past uh, several guards, uh, walking down a flight of stairs, up a flight of stairs. Finally, uh, an older guard is following her, and he radios her position, but two guards in the lobby actually try to stop her, and she goes all uh, you know, Sith on them. Like, she holds her hand out and chokes one of them. She waves her arm and throws another one across the floor with electric bolts uh, and, and just walks past them and blows out the front windows and just walks off into the night. No running, no hurry, no nothing, and doesn't bother to put on a stitch of anything. I, I mean, this, this girl's in the entire movie. Like, this is her, her big opening scene and she comes back at the climax of the film. Altogether, she's probably in the movie for 20 minutes and probably spends 17 of it naked. I mean, it, it, it's to the point where it annoys you. I, I never thought I'd actually say that about about anyone especially being naked in a movie it's like you reach the point where all right she's naked okay okay to where you're just sitting there thinking okay is she not going to grab a curtain is she not going to like throw on a shirt are we actually just are we still looking at at this are we still so (laughs) so they take the guard's body to uh be autopsied and they put out an alert for the alien girl. Dr. Muskovsky says that he saw saw her kill the guard. They're going to try to figure out how it's done. And then we're introduced to another man who, again, uh, at first we're not not really uh, told anything about him. He just shows up surrounded by reporters and you know, looking, trying to give everybody the fierce stare to let you know that he's in charge. But he does bother to introduce himself. And that's where we find out where the, who the other two guys are. Uh, this is Colonel Kane, who's going to turn out to be one of our two protagonists. And that's where I found out who Dr. Bukowski was. And the second man is Dr. Falada. And they fill him in on what's happened. And he orders a press blackout. He has the uh, SAS uh, work with the police to start trying to find out where the girl went, prepare a cover story. Uh, They show him the guard's body. Uh, Bukowski leaves at this point. He says that he's nauseous. Apparently, the girl did touch him and start to drain him, but didn't kill him. And... uh, we get a short scene where we find out a little bit more about Dr. Falada and Colonel Kane. Apparently, Dr. Falada is a Ph.D. in biochemistry, but this is a correct quote from the movie. His passion is thanatology, or death, and the afterlife, or the possibility of an afterlife. And this is all the point where, like in a lot of these films, 24 minutes, 28 in- seconds into it, they manage to work the movie's name into the script. As, if, as Dr. Falada says, if I'm correct, the life force is conserved always and in all things even after death but uh, he does say that the girl based on what he'd seen in the video footage and security footage is completely alien and no sorry totally alien and totally dangerous because this is the 80s and everything is totally but other than moving the guard to the autopsy the two males who we have to assume at this point are just as dangerous as she is are just still kept in storage like there's no extra guards there's no attempt to like put them in and when i say in storage i mean it's literally the same set that we were at before where the girl escaped from it's the one with the five office doors and then just a a small observation room and then a couple of rooms on either side with just glass doors and huge glass windows and they're just laying them in there no thought of okay maybe we need to do something with them maybe we need to have more guards move them to more secure facility etc etc and uh, we actually see that there's two guards down there. And I, I loved the line of one of them. And uh, he's asking, does he, he believe they're dangerous? 
and, and the line, I, I love the response of, I'm not paid to believe nothing, am I? Okay. I mean, I, I don't, I don't know. Uh, I, I don't really know what you mean by that. But, but uh, yeah, again, the males, all this is going on while Dr. Falada and Colonel Kane are upstairs talking, come back to life and blow out what, the, what seems to be about couple of hundred panes of glass trying to escape from this uh, this little office area and the guards you know empty guns into them no effect but they do bleed which i'm, I'm not sure why they bleed red blood why aliens who feed on energy would bleed red blood but I, I did notice and it was a little distracting because the movie did come out in the mid 80s is that one of them looks just like sam whitwer the actor that's a little distracting as, as he's trying to look menacing i'm sitting there thinking is, is that isn't that the guy that was in the uh, the Force Unleashed games a few years back? Isn't that the one that, that... I don't know. Anyway, they finally decide bullets aren't enough and blow them up by uh, a grenade. And by this point, both Kane and Falada have again run down three flights of stairs. No, sorry, three floors of stairs to uh, get there just in time to see see the aftermath and Falada has another great line as he's just you don't get to see the bodies blown to bits you just see like the, the, the room in pieces and Falada and Kane just looking around and Falada, Falada just you know straight faces well no chance of an autopsy on them now you think really and then we cut back to the autopsy of the guard who they claim is about 20 if you watch the movie I'll leave it up to you I don't buy it but he comes back to life as soon as they start to cut in, cut into him and I just realized this is the second movie I've done where somebody's come back to life during an autopsy. Our very first film, Psychic Killer. Uh, Arnold comes back to life the first time they try to autopsy him. I wonder if this is a pattern I need to be talking about. But anyway, uh, at this point, you, you kind of get the idea that one, this is contagious because, like vampirism, almost like uh, almost like Salem's Lot. You know, it doesn't require anything special. It just requires you to be killed by the vampire to become a vampire. But you also get the idea that there's a powerful. You know, this sort of confirms they have this powerful uh, hypnotic mesmerizing ability because he locks eyes with the doctor and the doctor does nothing to save himself in fact nobody around the room does anything to save the doctor or to stop what's happening uh, i don't know if it's supposed to be out of fright or out of like scientific curiosity or what but they just watch this guy come back to life kill one of their friends and restore himself to full health and then they of course grab him at that point how they knew they was going to be safe i have no idea but uh grab him at that point take him downstairs and put him what they call secured observation and they kind of figure out that uh two hours after being killed by one of one of the uh, aliens or by somebody's been killed by you know two hours after they died the person will come back as one of them and they'll have this in you know, overwhelming need to feed so they lock the revived guard in one it's not even a cell it's a storage room with chicken wire i mean that that's what it is it's just a storage room with chicken wire and two guards sticking standing outside of it they put him in one uh, they put the pieces of the aliens in one and they put the newly dead doctor in one and they start counting down two hours but during this point they find a naked the uh desiccated body of a girl in the park and uh, witnesses who they're saying are teens and again i'm not buying it uh, say they saw her with a dark-haired woman who was of course space girl and so they bring her back for observation and uh, this is where we're introduced to the the uh, three-time winner for most british name ever home secretary sir percy hesseltine who shows in because now the government's getting in you know the uh, upper echelons of the government are getting involved and we get to see the guard. Uh, it's two hours after he's come back to life, and he's not doing well. He he, you know, tries desperately to grab for people through the the door, and he starts getting you know older and thinner, and eventually he just collapses. And he reverts back to the way he was before they did the autopsy on him. Colonel Kane actually, no, Doctor Falada, sorry, actually reaches through with a broom handle and like pokes his chest and it falls away and he's just dust inside like he's he's a corpse that's been dead for decades instead of you know what had been a healthy young man just uh, several seconds before not long after this the doctor he attacked comes back and throws himself so hard against the door trying to trying to feed that he just collapses into dust himself they uh take the girl to the observation room the body they found and uh again Two hours, like clockwork, she comes back, and strapped to the table, you just see it's a pretty good, good uh, sequence. Trying to drain the energy out of, I guess, the room. You see her shorting out the medical equipment and the lights and everything, desperately trying to to feed, and then she just explodes into dust everywhere. 
It's about this time you also find out that the Churchill had an escape pod, and it had just landed in Texas. Colonel Carlson, who's going to wind up being our other protagonist, is the lone survivor of the Churchill, and when they pop the the uh, escape pod open, which, and the escape pod looks a lot like, and I wonder if it wasn't just a, a prop, a repurposed uh, 60s uh, module, you know, like the... the uh, Oh, crap. Like the ones that would drop into the, the ocean, the ones like the beginning of I Dream of Genie, the, uh, they almost look like a bottle cap. Like an old, uh, you know, skinny top, wide bottom, conical bottom. That's the, that's the escape pod. And when they pull him out of it, he is almost catatonic. I mean, he's just sort of, you know, got the thousand yard stare going. Uh, he looks like he, he's probably going to need, you know, several weeks of recovery. And no, they just, Shave him, give him a haircut, slap him in his uniform, and fly him immediately to England. So, yeah. And he tells them the story. He tells them that uh, Rawlings, who was one of the other crew members, destroyed the communications or uh, console so they couldn't communicate with anybody, and the next day he's found dead. Eventually, all of the crew, except for Carlson, die. And he escapes. He vents all the oxygen into the ship and uses a, uh, I guess as a laser? I, I, I don't I've never seen a piece of equipment by it. It doesn't really use a flame. It, it's, you know, a beam. But he sets the desiccated corpse of the bat alien on fire. And then he gets into the escape pod and launches himself just as the, the whole thing explodes. And again, I want to point out, there's ten people on this shuttle. And you have one escape pod. And it's designed to hold one person. So, yeah, and Carlson pretty much hammers home the, the idea that, you know, the, the aliens have a mesmerizing effect on people near them. He talks about that leaving Space Girl behind was the hardest thing he'd ever did in his life. Blowing up the shuttle was the hardest thing he'd ever done, but he did it in order to save the Earth. And while he's explaining all this, we see the alien ship start to enter Earth orbit, and NASA starting to pick up on it. Uh, Carlson, they let get some rest at the facility, and the girl visits him in the in his dreams. And it's a little, I don't I don't know. The scene's a little weird because he's still in the the bed, but then all of a sudden they're in what looks like a cemetery. You know, it's all concrete and and flat surfaces and dark. And she's talking about how. He took something from her as she tried to take something from him and they're now linked. And that he has some kind of, you know, they have a connection between them. And, you know, because, again, as I said, she's only got clothes for like two minutes in the movie. Well, this is our obligatory mid-80s sex scene. But he wakes up screaming, explains that he has a mental connection with her but can't really remember anything about the dream or anything she told him. So the next morning, Dr. Falada, I'm pronouncing that right, yeah, Dr. Falada hypnotizes him. And through his mental connection, he realizes the girl has possessed a woman. And she's hunting for more people to feed on. And she just wants to feed. She doesn't want to kill because, excuse me, because killing people would, of course, attract more attention and allow them to find her quicker because she doesn't know they can use the bond that Carson has with her in order to find her. But Carson sees the, the woman that she's that is possessed. He watches her get into a car with a man, and then the connection breaks. But not before he gets a license plate and a make of the car and what the guy looks like. Uh, he does explain that the woman is possessed, that the, the girl has hidden her original body. But he has no idea where it is since, I guess because he's linked to her mind. But the ship has entered geosynchronous orbit over London. And th this is the part that I wasn't really sure about. It, it kind of seemed out of place. It made sense later in the film. But I kind of, I don't know, I kind of wish there had been a little bit more to explain what was going on. Because you see a, a woman, a very zombie looking woman, crawling through an alley. And several drained bodies near her. And I'm like, okay, if 
you know, is this more people the chick fed on? Is there something else going on? Uh, you know, it, it, it's not really well explained. It's, it kind of hints there maybe something else going on, but I feel like it could have been done a little better. It just confused me a little. And we go back to Falada's office, and then, again, the confusion just continues because for some reason he's had a bladed weapon marked, and they actually zoom in on the uh, on a placard on the box and I'm thinking this I'm thinking this the previous scene in this may have been something that may have been fleshed out by some of the deleted scenes because it says uh, presented to Ashmolean Museum by Captain John Masters 1858 I, I, I really like I said I don't know why Falada had this brought in there's no explanation for it there's nothing uh, he does mention that he's testing a skin sample and we see him uh, call for one of the guards that was uh, seen earlier. And that, again, that wasn't really explained at that point. It comes out later, but he does ask for a sergeant to be brought in, and I kind of I recognize the guy from earlier. But they trace the car and find out that the girl is named Ellen and works as a nurse for the Thurlstone Asylum for the Criminally Insane. And so Kane and... Carlson head up that way figuring that you know if he gets close to her he might be able to drive the girl out or he might be able to figure out where her body is whatever and I was really surprised Patrick Stewart is the director of the asylum and uh, you know nice little role nice uh, <laughs> nice just little surprise in the middle of all this but he shows them to shows Kane and Carlson to Ellen's apartment and when he gets close enough, Carlson realizes that the girl has left Ellen. But he can probably still figure find out where she is from Ellen. It's kind of a, a, a kind of an it's not supposed to be funny, but it it it's just kind of a weird moment as he just starts smacking Ellen around like some bad cop movie. <laughs> And tells Kane he can wait outside if he can't handle handle watching him get the information he needs from Ellen. And another great line I had to write this one down is Kane starts to stand up to leave and then just sits back down with a kind of a strange look on his face, going, "Not at all. I'm a natural voyeur." Yeah, <clears throat> but eventually Carlson figures out that uh, he he can't smack Ellen around, so he kisses her, and somehow that. Uh, tells him everything he needs to know about Space Girl and where she is. And he uh, talks to Patrick Stewart's character, mentions a patient, describes him, and of course, Patrick Stewart immediately is, you know, this huge asylum can apparently knows everybody by by face because he tells him exactly who, he, who the guy is, where to find him, etc. And... So they go there, and they're going to use a, a combination of drugs, including sodium pentothal, to get him to talk, because apparently this is where this is the body of the girl's in now. But it turns out to be a, a ruse. It turns out she's jumped into Picard's body. <laughs> I know, I know, his, his name's not Picard, but I didn't bother to write down what the character's name is because it's Patrick Stewart. I just couldn't. But uh, they take him to an office for interrogation. I have to say, the orderly is a big guy I mean he's a head taller than everybody else and, and you know pretty stout guy but he just goes along with them oh yeah we're taking you know, we're drugging drugging your boss oh we're taking him in here and strapping him to this this chair and and uh, we're gonna drug him some more until he tells us what he wants us to know because there's an alien chick living inside of him and he just goes right along with it I mean he's like, all right whatever I mean just no hesitation <laughs> no okay there might be you two might be doing this I don't know if it's because He's dealing with a member of the SAS and a member of uh, Parliament because the Home Secretary is there as well. I forgot to mention that. But yeah, he just goes along with it, gives them whatever they need. And so uh, Carlson actually gets Space Girl. And again, they couldn't name her, really, to uh, talk to him and finds out that the uh, bat-like bodies on the ship or their natural form 
but they're able to alter their bodies and her and her two companions did so when the shuttle got close enough and according to her she pulled her form from Carlson's mind she is his ideal female so she is irresistible to him now that's what she claims he keeps demanding that she let him go and it's really awkward it's really uh it's, kind of, it's well done but at the same time it's a little weird as she bounces back and forth between uh her her female form and patrick stewart's body so you get these these moments of you know it's patrick stewart looking at him and then it's space girl and then he leans in because, of course, he's enraptured with her. He's in love with her. And he kisses her. And then he comes back, and it's Patrick Stewart. And, hey, trivia time you can share with all your friends. This is Patrick Stewart's first on-screen kiss. So, yeah. But anyway, uh, while this is going on, she apparently tries to feed on Carlson or, or reclaim what he took from her when they first met. And, again, electricity just blows through the room, shorts out all kinds of things. Uh, knocks the home secretary and Kane across the room. Kane finally manages to pick himself up and inject uh, Patrick Stewart with, with the drugs again in order to uh, calm him down and, and stop the attacks, knock him out. And Carlson says he'd seen into her mind and it's spreading. And this is where it ke- you know, kicks back to the zombie girl from earlier in that the films, they're space vampires, but they're the, the way it spreads almost a zombie virus and we see London just overwhelmed by people attacking other people and draining the electricity out of their bodies and, and just absolute chaos and, and the makeup effects and everything it's very much more of a uh, walking dead or, or night of the living dead kind of situation and it, uh, you know Carlson informs of this that it's spreading and that the ship's in geosynchronous orbit over London this happens every time Haley's Comet comes back there's some kind of disaster uh, and the home secretary has died being thrown across the room broke his neck but and i meant to look this up but he, he mentions that they didn't find all the victims and now it's spreading geometrically and therefore it's unstoppable but Falata contacts them and uh, this pays off what's set up earlier said the males jumped into the guards bodies and transformed them and they eventually made them into copies of their original bodies and he says that he's pretty sure the vampire legends arose from these aliens and that's when we find out that he killed the Killed the sergeant that came in earlier by driving the weapon, which is made from leaded steel, uh, through his energy organ. Whatever that means. It's not the heart. It's like right where your left kidney would be. But uh, they load up Patrick Stewart and the home secretary onto a helicopter and they're trying to get back to London. And it is, it's a really weird psychedelic almost sequence as all the blood starts to pour out of Patrick Stewart and out of the home secretary. And it's, I mean, it's really well done. I mean, for mid eighties, the special effects really hold up well as you see the blood pouring out of both their bodies and forming into the space girl. The sound effects though, it's, uh, it's like a bad ASMR video. It, it's a lot of slime sounds and what sounds like pig squeals and whatnot, but ignore that visually it is a very arresting very well done scene but all this is going on and and Kane and Carlson are sitting there watching it and just horrified and when it's finally over and Space Girl is standing there and a body made completely out of blood that's when the uh, helicopter finally pilot finally turns around and screams not during any of the thing previously no it's it's that when it finally ends is when he finally decides okay maybe it's safe to turn around and as we get a few moments of the helicopter out of control but uh blood chick collapses and returns to her body and that's where we find out the truth and i I got a feeling this may have been more of the beginning of the film like stuff edited back in because you find out that uh, carlson's the one who destroyed the radio he destroyed the tapes he sabotaged the church hill because he opened the female's chamber and kissed her. And instead of her draining him, for some reason they exchanged some kind of energy and that's where the link came from. And he says that he loved her more deeply than he'd ever loved anything in his life. That she chose him. That he's like her, you know, meant to be. That they're they're uh, supposed to be you know, with each other forever. And he says that she has destroyed you know, worlds, complete worlds, wiped them of life in her long life. And at the end of all this, we find a special bulletin from London 
the entire city's in flames and throughout the the scenes of chaos and the, the zombies and i say zombies because it actually shows what some people biting like a vampire like an old-timey you know more traditional vampire but we get to see like an energy ball like a oversized ball lightning just blowing through buildings and, and uh leveling them and just explosions uh carlson and kane are taken to I don't know what the building is. It's where the prime minister and the cabinet, uh, his cabinet members have holed up. But once they're there, they realize that yeah, all of them have already been infected and they have to fight their way out and barely escape in a helicopter and make it to a NATO area. NATO explains that if they can't, con- that if they can't contain the plague, because that's all they're seeing it is right now is just a plague and rioting. They've got orders to nuke London in, did I not write that down? Seriously? Three hours, I believe if I'm remembering right. If not, correct me in the comments. But the ship's parked over London, and you find out that the ball of energy is from one of the the, uh, the one surviving guy. He's sending it through the city, and all those infected, he's draining all the energy out of them and draining it back to him through the girl, and there's a huge column of energy from the girl going up, going up into the ship, powering the ship back up. So, yeah, the male's collecting it, female's sending it back up, and she's also summoning Carlson because she wants her energy back. Uh, Carlson steals an armored vehicle and fights his way through London, drive, drive, yeah, fights and drives his way through London to get to her. At I, I'm sure somebody knows London might know what the building is. It, it appears to be some kind of cathedral. I, I guess I don't know. Would it be Westminster? Uh, I don't know. Doesn't matter. But he, he gets there, and it's a nice little segment as you see all these people who have been drained, but not quite dead, just laying in piles on the steps, and he has to step over them. He has to, uh, in order to get to the girl. And again, I really like the effects. I like the choices. She's laying, like a traditional vampire, she's laying on, on one of the uh, mausoleums down in the basement of the place. And when she opens her eyes up, the I've never seen uh, contacts like this. Her eyes are, uh, the irises in them are giant spirals and it's a really you know red and black and it's a really nice done effect and the blue lighting sort of adds a surreal quality to everything it, it's really well shot i really enjoyed uh, the these this sequence and and him coming to her and her tempting him and uh, you know the big laser coming out of the top of the building but Kane follows, and they explain to Kane that once he goes in, they can't let him out. He either got to bring an end to this, or he's going to die in the nuke. And he, I, I don't, I don't get it. Uh, he keeps making stops, and every time he stops, the vampire, zombie, whatever you want to call them, attack his vehicle. And it's like, dude, quit stopping. Just you know where you got to go. You know what you got to do. He uh, makes his way back to the space agency and finds out that Falada has been turned and uh he tells him what he needs to do right before kane has to kill him when he removes the body removes the blade from the guard's body however the body just finally collapses into ash uh and we cut back to carlson and space girl and they're standing in each other's arms buck naked surprise and uh on top of the crypt in the middle of it and she talks about that carlson's destiny uh, was to find her was to find them his whole life and everything he'd ever done had brought him to the moment that he had to bring them to earth that he's actually one of them uh kane who lost his car got blown up uh is now running through the streets fighting his way through zombies he's following the energy beam back trying to to figure out where where space girl is because you know it's not like there's a huge blue laser coming out of the middle of the coming out of the roof of the building she's in i mean i don't know why you wouldn't use that to to uh find her but hey i didn't write the movie but uh once he gets to once he gets to the church the other male is outside and carlson manages to run him through with the blade and before he dies he turns into back into his original his his natural shape the giant bat alien and it's a really well done the ones in the spaceship I guess where they're desiccated, I, I just, I don't know, they, there wasn't really a lot of detail to them. I, they really impressed me. But seeing seeing it in motion, uh, seeing seeing it as it transforms and as he goes through his death throes, it's a really well-designed creature. And, uh, and you know, I, I, I really liked it. I thought it was, it was it, they could have gone with just an oversized bat or just something more like a man bat, say, from, from uh, the Batman comics. But they didn't. They actually went with a a very alien looking yet still recognizable design and i, I really liked it and he, he manages to get his way in and signs, he sees carlson and space girl making out on top of the crypt and the perspectives are weird i'm not sure how far down the the uh the basement is or the lower level is when uh kane looks down in it carlson and space girl look i mean close enough that he could just reach down and just stab her through the top of the head but when we see the 
see uh, Kane from Carlson's perspective, it looks like he's at least 50 feet away. And they, they switch back and forth between these perspectives a couple of times. I guess that's why I, I keep talking about it. But uh, in the end, Kane tosses Carlson the weapon, and he runs himself and Space Girl through with it. And the movie ends with then you know, the, all the blue energy turns red, but instead of them dying, they're sucked up into the ship on the energy beam. The roof of the the building blows out, collapses in. Uh, we see the spaceship, see them, you know, enter into the spaceship, and then we see the spaceship sail off and catch up with Haley's Comet again. And we see Kane down on the ground just looking up as the sun rises, and the film ends. And that's pretty much Life Force. Uh, like I said, it wasn't the movie I intended to watch, but I, I enjoyed it. I really did. It's it's a good... Uh, I mean, it's not going to win any awards. And there are a few points in the story, like I said, things could have been done better. And, you know, who knows? The director's cut may address some of these issues I have with it. But at the end of the day, I enjoyed it. Um, if you're looking for just a, a decent sci-fi horror movie to put in and, and enjoy one night, you can do a lot worse. Uh, it, it was a fun flick. It was one, I don't know if I'll watch it again or, well, I won't watch it again immediately, but it, it's one that if I caught it on somewhere or somebody suggested it, I wouldn't mind sitting through it again. It does have issues, but at the end of the day, yeah, it, it's a it's a decent and, and fun movie from a legend in the horror industry. So definitely one, if you're into these type of films, you should watch. But uh, that's it for this week gonna wrap it up and uh gonna so that's it for this week we're gonna wrap it up and uh if you like you know wherever you got this from subscribe leave us a review that'll help us out and if you want to give us a little financial donation we uh we accept them i'm on buy me a coffee under celluloid fever dreams uh if you got this from anchor i know anchor allows you to direct deposit but uh either way if you liked what you heard tell a friend if you didn't like it tell an enemy so uh that's what i was saying uh, that's it for this week's episode. Uh, glad you joined us. Glad you let me be part of your day. Hope to see you again next week when our film will be Death Becomes Her, starring Bruce Willis, Goldie Hawn, and Meryl Streep. A uh, nice little dark comedy involving necromancy and romance. If you uh, liked what you heard, tell a friend. If you didn't like what you heard, tell an enemy. Either way, go back to wherever you got this podcast from and leave me a review. Let me know what you think about what I'm doing. Uh, if you want to be a little more direct with it, you can contact me through Twitter at, at CFeverDreams, or you can contact me on Facebook or Instagram at CelluloidFeverDreams. If you'd like to financially support the show, you can go to buy me a coffee and uh, make a donation. I don't have a Patreon yet, but uh, I've enjoyed our time together. I hope to see you again here next week. And until then, uh, be good to yourself because you deserve it, and be nice to others. And thank you once again for joining me.